3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday Breakfast, 3CR, 8.55am, and it is just gone 7 in the morning. Good morning, Rosie. Good morning, Carly. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's July now. It's the 1st of July. Um, we are now officially more than halfway through the year. How are you both feeling? Uh, that is, I mean, it's not really upsetting, is it? But it just is upsetting that it, it moves so quickly. I don't know. It is what it is. It is. <laughs> uh, I, have we gotten past the coldest part of the year? That's what I'm kind of trying to figure out. I don't think so. No. Sorry. Oh, Okay. Um, I think it, it's it's getting lighter though, so that's that's something. And I really thought I could go through the whole year without getting any gloves to to ride with, but I might I might still have cold enough mornings that I will need to get gloves. Yeah, I'm scowling in the studio. <laughs> get gloves, Priya. Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> How have you been riding at five thirty in the morning every week? That's my question. Look, I think if it's above five degrees, my fingers are fine. Um. Anyway. Anyway, uh, we have a big show for you as always. We've got a special, um, well, we've got a special part of the program uh, this week. We've got an extended interview that we're going to play for you in three parts. Um, Carly, did you want to take us through what that first thing we have on? Yeah, sure, Priya. So first up, we hear from Amy and Karen, who are activists involved in the Homes Not Prison campaign. Um, they join us to speak a little bit about the campaign to stop the expansion of Dame Phyllis Frost Prison. But for most of the interview, Amy shares her story of being incarcerated at Dame Phyllis Frost Prison, and she shares an in-depth insight into the draconian Victorian bail laws, which came into effect in 2018. And then we'll speak to Debbie Lee, who's the New South Wales Sector Development Officer from the First People's Disability Network. And Debbie's joining us to discuss the experience of people with cognitive disability and the issues they face when coming into contact with criminal legal systems and the NDIS. And then finally, we're joined by George Cangere, who represents the newly formed Save the Preston Market Action Group. And George is joining us to discuss the fight to save Preston Market from aggressive redevelopment, which is being proposed by the Victorian Planning Authority. Um, so definitely stay tuned for that, because that is an ongoing local action. And uh, the Darabin uh, Council are calling people, uh, calling for people to uh, write in, make submissions, um, have your say. So especially if you're listening in from the Darabin Council, um, please, you know, keep on top of that. It's really important that we save Preston Market. It's such an important part of the community and has been for, I believe, over 50 years. Um, yeah, and... Something else that I wanted to say is uh, Radiothon is now over. So June was our Radiothon month. And we just want to um, thank everybody who took the time to call in, to donate online, to text in a pledge. Um, we ended up, um, for our show, raising over 200% of the target that we were supposed to hit. So thank you so much, everyone. Um, we really, really appreciate the support. And I think we got to just around $200,000 for the station. So 
very grateful for all the support. And remember, you can always continue to uh, support 3CR financially by making um, making a donation, but also subscribing. So you can call the station to subscribe on 94198377. And that subscription also goes a long way towards covering those operation costs and, and other things we were trying to fund. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did we want to hop into some headlines? Yeah, for sure. Oh, okay. Rosie, go ahead. No, you no, go ahead. <laughs> um, I think the first thing that I wanted to um, to mention is that there is another uh, free Palestine rally this weekend. And so the rally is on Saturday at, um, I believe, 1 p.m. outside the State Library of Victoria. Let me just pull up more information on this. Um, but yeah, basically, the fight is ongoing, you know, uh, even though Netanyahu's out and there's supposedly... Um, you know, things have de-escalated. Really, there's still ethnic cleansing going on in the neighborhoods of Sheikh Jarrah, Silwan. And so there's a lot of, yeah, really uh, concerning stuff uh, being perpetrated by the Israeli occupation forces on Palestinian people. So this is um, 1 p.m. Saturday, the 3rd of July, outside the State Library. Please come if you can. Mm, yeah, so those those demolitions um, in the neighbourhood of Silwan in East Jerusalem like began a few days ago um, with the demolition of a butcher's shop. And, you know, of course, um, activists are being um, pushed back with, you know, violence, with tear gas, um, you know, not just activists, but the actual people who live in these places. So, yeah, it's really, um, it really is continuing and we need to keep supporting, keep being in solidarity and keep fighting. Yeah. Um, also, this is just a very small little news bite, but um, apparently uh, Donald Rumsfeld has passed away. Um, Donald Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld, you may recall, is uh, the architect of selling chemical weapons to Saddam Hussein and then participating in the destruction of Iraq. So Donald Rumsfeld has passed away. I'm sure a lot of people have uh, a lot more eloquent and potentially uh, – emotive things to say about that. I mean, yeah. The other thing that we were, I don't know, we were just discussing off, off air is um, these kind of confusing messages about vaccines at the moment and whether under 40 should be receiving an AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, you know, the Prime Minister sort of said that you should, sort of, a few days ago, and then we've got all these other health officials saying conflicting things. So, um, it's a it's a confusing, really, con- another yet another confusing thing about um, this pandemic and about the way the government is messaging it. Yeah, I think uh, if if Thursday Breakfast has a message, it's do your research and government, please get your public health messaging together because we all want to know um, how to best approach this. You know, we can't stay locked down forever. This border regime um, that Australia has imposed initially, um, you know, while, while we're critical of uh, bordering in general, um, initially allowed government to keep those numbers low, but without really the infrastructure built up over that long period of time that so many people have sort of sacrificed and experienced extreme hardship under um, to actually get an effective vaccine rollout or even effective quarantine. Um, So another uh, news update that we have is that the coronial inquest into the death of Raymond Thomas is um, ongoing this week uh, at the Victorian Coroner's Court. Now, Raymond uh, passed away tragically in a police pursuit um, in 2017 in Preston, um, Thornbury, Preston, around um, Dundas Street and Victoria Street. And um, 
yeah, it's just been it's just been heartbreaking and so so awful to hear. Um, I guess the the way that his case has been discussed. Um, I managed to attend the inquest yesterday, and the family are really um, requesting that people show up if they can. I believe there's one more day this week, which is on Friday, um, but it is just so tragic um the the riot police actually ended up being called yesterday we're hearing reports from people who were there into the afternoon um and not because there was any disturbance and the coroner actually actually commended the the conduct and and composure of the family and supporters but um under the pretense that people there had warrants out it was quite ridiculous and you know these intimidation tactics are, are being pulled on purpose and the family really needs your support during this time um, so please follow um, for updates the Dajawa Foundation that's D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A Foundation you can find them on Instagram and on Twitter great thanks for that Priya and I think that we'll have to get into this um, interview now um, but I just want to give um, a bit of a warning for listeners um, so Amy does speak about her experiences of um, intimate partner violence Um, and so if you do need to take a break um, please do and if you need to call Lifeline the number is 131114 so that number for Lifeline is 131114 and so here's the interview. Today joining me in the studio is Amy and Karen who are both activists involved in the Homes Not Prisons campaign and they're joining us today to speak about the campaign to stop the expansion of Dame Phyllis Frost Prison as well as talking a bit about the bail law reforms in 2018 and how they're having an effect on people in prisons. Welcome Amy and welcome Karen. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So, I might get Amy, you to introduce yourself for listeners. Um, yep, so I'm Amy and I have lived experience of being um, remanded in custody at DPFC. And Karen. Hi, I'm Karen. Uh, I am on the board of Flat Out, which is a statewide service for women leaving prison and their kids. We provide support for women to get out and stay out of prison. Great, thank you for that. So, Amy, would you like to share a little bit of your story of coming into contact with the criminal legal system? And then we'll get into talking a bit more about those bail law reforms in 2018. Um, Yep, sure. So um, my experience um, was in 2019. There was a family violence incident between myself and my husband. Um, He held me down and strangled me in front of, which was witnessed by um, my 12-year-old son with autism, and I defended myself, uh, which stopped him, um, you know, strangling me, but um, the police were called um, and I was arrested and he was taken to hospital. Um, And that's sort of the starting point. Um, I told the police um uh so the last thing so i have uh, i had a 12 year old son a 11 year old daughter and at that time a 17 month old baby um the last thing my son said to me before the police arrived was i saw him hold you down i don't want to be taken away from you um i knew the police were coming um so i sort of kept it together as best i could I explained 
at least three times to the police that came what had happened um, and um, they sort of <laughs> weren't interested. Um, the fight, the, the argument that had happened is that it was based on um, money, uh, sort of. So there was a lot of a background of abuse in the relationship, but sometimes physical, but more um, emotional, psychological, coercive and financial control. So this was an argument around that financial, like withholding financial um, assets of the marriage. Um, and one officer at the scene was like, walked off, was like, oh, so it was an argument about money. Um, and I went, uh, yes, I was arrested. I complied. I cooperated every step of the way. I, um, I at that stage, um, was working within the criminal justice system. So I had a belief in the system. Um, you know, it was the system I worked within. Um, and so I strongly believe that if I could just tell the truth about what would happen, I would be released on bail. I expected consequences. Um, but my first and foremost thought was I need to go home to my kids. Um, and they, the police denied me bail. Um, and then the next day I was taken to court, um, and... I waited all day and I saw a duty lawyer very briefly who said, um, who I again explained all the circumstances to, um, and basically they advised make an application for bail yourself and if it's denied, you have another chance to get a lawyer to do it for you. Um, I so I, when I was when it was my turn to go into the court, the judge said to me, um, there's a presumption against bail um, and you need to provide a compelling reason why you should be granted bail. Um, I wasn't charged with any serious offences. Um, my most serious, I was charged with a few, like assault and things like that, but the most serious charge was intentionally causing injury, not causing serious injury. There was nothing, there was no serious charges. Um, so I said to the judge, look, I'm 30 years old. I work in the criminal justice system. I have never been arrested or charged or anything in my life. Um, I, this was a family violence incident where I was defending myself. Um, I have a child with autism. I have, um, two other children, a daughter and a 17-month-old baby, and if I'm not released, they will go into foster care. And that wasn't compelling enough, um, and I was remanded into custody. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that story, Amy. Um, and maybe, Karen, can you talk about some of these effects that these really harsh bail laws have had on some people that you've worked alongside as well? Yeah, well, Amy's story is not unusual these days. In the last probably three or four years, we're seeing more and more people remanded into custody for re relatively minor offences and stuck in custody for some period of time. Amy, I, I gather you were in for several months. Yes, so I was remanded for 110 days. I wanted, I explained to my lawyer that I wanted to um, explore a defence of self-defence. 
um, my lawyer advised that this would be unlikely to succeed and that um, it would involve cross-examining my then 13-year-old son who has autism and that the court doesn't look kindly on cross-examining children and also not something that I would want to put my son through. Um, so I followed, you know, um, that advice. I pleaded guilty. Um, I had served 110 days on remand. I was sentenced to another 10 days, 120 days all up. In sentencing me, the judge said that if not for my guilty plea, he would have doubled my time to eight months. Um, and just with the effect on my kids, um, the night I was arrested, intervention orders were granted or the police here got intervention orders against me for the protection of my husband and my children so I could have no contact with them. Child protection became involved immediately, as I knew they would. There was no carer. Um, And the court orders that were made um, provided for weekly phone contact with my older two children and monthly visits with my 17-month-old son who, from the day he was born, had spent every... Um, day of his life in my care Um, and so I could have weekly phone visits uh, yeah weekly phone contact with my older children and monthly visits with all three kids Uh, none of that happened I saw my 17 month old twice in 120 days Um, DHS are impossible to contact Um, there was no repercussions for this um, contact not happening. There was no way for me to make this contact happen. And so when I'm not even, when I'm not even getting the contact that I'm, the court orders and I'm faced with, you can basically get time served or serve another four months and not see your children, despite what I think is right and the truth of what happened to me, I think and I know the mothers in there will do anything to get out um, to see their children. And I did. I got out. Um, the old my older children were a bit different because they had a say in the contact of when and where. But then I was seeing my my seventeen month old two and then three times a week. Mm. So four months of nothing, just doing three times a week. I you know, every day of the week I would plead guilty. Yeah, and I'm sure that. A lot of other people in DPFC who are also mothers and carers would also take that early plea of guilty if they know that they're going to just be able to serve that time and then get out, right, and see their family. Um, Yeah, Karen, did you want to add a bit more to the effects of these bail laws and also maybe um, give listeners a bit of a history of how these bail laws in 2018 came to fruition? Yeah, well, Amy's um, done quite a bit of research on that too, so I might start things off and then hand it over back to her. But um, from Flat Out's perspective, I mean, what we see is that more than half of the women that are in Dame Phyllis Frost at the moment are on remand. Uh, The pressure on the system by this change in the bail laws, which Amy can explain, um, has become enormous where there are just uh, thousands of women going into Dame Phyllis Frost, um, churning through, doing a few weeks, a couple of months on remand. And then, as you say, under enormous pressure to plead guilty and not have a trial because especially during COVID, people have been waiting months, if not years, for uh, their day in court. So you get the choice of plead guilty now and get an extra 10 days like Amy did or um, plead not guilty and wait months or even years for a trial. Um, 
so a lot of people are just um, staying in there, pleading and then getting time served. Uh, but yeah, going in just long enough, as Amy has explained, to um, lose their kids or lose a lot of contact with their kids, lose their accommodation. A lot of people, uh, you know, lose their rental or other kinds of accommodation just long enough to ruin their life, lose their job, <laughs> if they have a job, um, long enough to ruin lives. And this is thousands, we're talking about thousands of women. And the other thing about Amy's story that's really common that we're seeing is that um, a lot of the time uh, women are dealing with family violence um, and responding to family violence and being charged by police, being misidentified as a perpetrator uh, by police who have sympathy for the men in the situation. Um, uh, and then because of the bail laws, uh, going before a magistrate who essentially says to them, you have to prove that you're not a risk rather than the police have to prove that you are a risk. So it, you know, it used to be that there was a, a presumption that people would be bailed unless they posed a serious risk to community safety. That's been uh, turned around. I'll ask Amy to explain why. But um, so that now the people who go to court are required to prove that they don't pose a risk. And as Amy has explained, that's extremely difficult to do. People are traumatised. A lot of people who go into custody uh, have... Um, cognitive disabilities, mental health problems, uh, uh, uses of alcohol and other drugs, uh, put up in front of a magistrate. I mean, Amy is extremely well-spoken and, um, and educated, and sh she was still unable to meet that requirement. But a lot of people who are taken in uh, have a lot of difficulty even um, dealing with the fact that they're in court before a magistrate and then to be asked to provide proof or evidence that they pose no risk to the community. It's just a complete turnaround of, of the situation and takes the responsibility of the police off them uh, that they used to have to be able to, to, that they had to prove that they'd taken someone into custody that actually posed a risk. Yeah, and I think this is also a complete contradiction of one of the principles of sentencing where prison is meant to be um, a last resort, and yet we see now, because of these really stringent bail laws, that so many people are going into prison not as a last resort. They're it's going actually in there. a first. Yeah. It's a default response now in Victoria. The default is you go to prison unless you can prove that you shouldn't. Uh, that's that's just the way the law is now. It's a complete reversal of, as you say, the presumption of innocence and the presumption um, that people should not be uh, imprisoned unless there's evidence that they pose a risk. Uh, I think, as Amy will probably talk about, one of the drivers of this has been the sort of law and order campaign by the Victorian government following some really serious offending, particularly the Gargasoulis case where... Um, the man drove into the city and killed people with his car. Uh, if you have a look at the coroner's inquest into the deaths of those people that were killed by Gargasoulis, there was masses of evidence that he posed a risk, including that he had assaulted uh, his ex-partner, um, committed violence against his brother, uh, all sorts of evidence. And um, the police failed to present that to the bail justice. Uh, and the coroners in that inquest really took the police to task for that failure. And yet what the government has done is not to uh, require the police to actually do their um, job and uh, identify people that do pose a risk to community safety, like Gargasoulis did, um, but to make everybody presumed to be a risk uh, and have to have to prove that they're not. 
it was definitely Gargasaurus as well, but a, another key driver was Adrian Bailey um, and Kelly Gilmar and um, Sean Price um, and him uh, committing murder of a young girl while on. So there was these people committing um, really serious offences while on bail and parole. Um, and the thing that I find most hypocritical about this government response is that these are men committing gross acts of violence against women and the people that are most affected by these bail laws are women um, because they're disproportionately targeted, um, they have the flow-on effects to their children um, and in a huge generalisation, when men go to prison, there isn't, um, they're usually not primary carers of their children. There's usually someone to pick up the, the pieces, um, whether it be the mother of the children, um, you know, the um, mother, the extended family. Um, again, a generalisation, but that is very um, specific to women who are primary carers. And so these effect, these bail laws that are like, oh, these men acted so violently while supposed to be on, under the supervision of the state that actually tearing a lot, you know, tearing apart the lives of women and their children, which was apparently the issue that these bail laws were supposed to address. Um, and I also did, aside from losing care of my children, um, I lost, I had a rental, I had a full-time job within the criminal justice system. Yeah, so I lost overnight by the um, decision to, deny me bail. I lost my house, my job, my kids. Um, and it has taken um, years. That, so this was 2019, years to rebuild even just some of that. Um, so, and I recognise that that's because I have a level of privilege. I have, you know, I um, have a good work history that I can refer back to. I have a law degree. Um, I had a parent who could financially help me out. You know, a lot of people don't have that. Um, you know, they are trapped in cycles of offending. They're trapped in poverty. They don't, they haven't grown up, you know, in supportive, positive environments. So, and that's why I do the stuff that I do because I know I have the privilege of that I did get out and I won't go back. Whereas, like Karen said, people, some people can't, represent themselves to a judge. And it is it is really hard when you've been a victim of family violence, you've the night before been strangled in front of your son and been taken away by police in front of your children to get up there and coherently explain why you should be released. Like, it is, and then to have a judge say, not good enough, it is soul-destroying. And so you need a lot... Um, you know, to, like, hold on and, you know, keep it together. So, you know, it's no wonder that people are remanded because even when you do do your best and you are coherent and you try to explain things and have no criminal history for 30 years, not good enough. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8 by 5 a.m. You did mention that um, because of being remanded initially in prison, that then the child protection, you know, system became involved. How long did that child protection system be involved in your life? 
Um, so they stayed. So I was in custody from February 2019 to June 2019, so for four months. Their their involvement with me ended in June 2020. So for about 18 months. Um, I yeah, like I said, I had two visits with my 17 month old son in while I was in custody. Um, it was left to my older two children to decide where they wanted to live. Um, and my contact with all of the children was supervised until the older two said they didn't want it to be. And um, the only, it, um, at the very start of uh, COVID actually, um, in regards to my uh, my uh, youngest son, who's two, two and a half by then, they were making it supervised to monitored. Um, so they had to make a decision um, about what they were going to do about that because I was having to travel to DHS um, three times a week to spend um, two hours sitting in a room with my two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old son who didn't had no interest in sitting, being confined to a room. Um, and so, you know, after displaying, you know, compliance. I was also, so in addition to my sentence, I also had an 18-month community corrections order, which required um, that I engage with psychological help and drug and alcohol services as required by corrections. Um, so, yes, in as I complied with that, DHS were happy with my progress. Um, and so they were, DHS at the beginning of COVID were going to move my um, access to monitored, where I would go to the DHS office, get my son, go to a park. So they knew where I was, but wouldn't be supervising me. Um, and then they, one day uh, the office was just closed and I rang my case manager and they told me that I could have video visits with my two and a half year old son who had aut autism and was, didn't speak. Um, and I made, a, I wrote to the uh, minister, um, complaining about that, about how that was not, <laughs> it was not sufficient. Um, and so beyond the best interest of the child, it was outrageous mm. to mm. see my son three times a week. They were going to let me take him to a park and to have video visits. Um, so COVID sort of fast-tracked that because they had to make it monitored um, but made it monitored by my husband, which was the perpetrator of family violence. We won't go into that. <laughs> um, but basically got to a point by June 2020, um, DHS were happy with the contact I was having with the older two children and happy that, you know, they could have a say and that would be abided by um, and that they got to the position where they were happy for my husband and I to work out arrangements for contact with my son. So, yes, about 18 months of DHS involvement. This is a really common situation. Um, I spoke before about how more than half of the women who are in Dame Phyllis Frost are on remand and there for short periods of time. But as I said, it's and as Amy's explained, it's enough to completely disrupt family life and separate children from their mother. And Child Protection and DHHS... Uh, become involved, and our experience at Flat Out is that it's an absolute struggle for for women, for mothers who are inside, to get contact with their children. 
DHHS will say the children are being brought for a visit and our clients will be dressed and ready, waiting in the morning for their children to arrive, and they don't come. Uh, they try to get in touch with DHS to ask what's happening and they can't get in touch. This experience of um, being completely disempowered as a mother uh, to support your kids is, is really a serious problem with what's going on. And there's not really much information that's available about the impact that it's having on the kids. We've um, been looking for data on how many kids are put into foster care and state care as a result of their primary care, usually their mother being put into prison. And we understand that DHHS doesn't keep that statistic as a reason for removal. So they will say things like neglect and abuse and uh, other things as a reason, but they don't actually have a box to tick which says parent has been imprisoned. So we don't know. But we do know that the number of children being taken into care, both kinship care and uh, out-of-home care um, by the state, is increasing. And we believe that that increase is related to the increase of women who are being put into prison. And the numbers are astronomical. Um, you know, whilst there's only, only, whilst there is around 400 women any one night at Dame Phyllis Frost, because they're churning through at such a rate, that's thousands over the year that are going in for a month here, two months there, three months. And that's a lot of children because the vast majority of those women are mothers and primary carers. So this is affecting an enormous amount of children. And we also know that, um, that it can be the beginning of a very rough experience for children once they get uh, taken out of their parents' care, put into state care, which can be... Uh, there are lots of problems um, for children in that system, which is shown by, there have been studies which show it's a, virtually a pipeline from state care into juvenile detention and into the adult prison system. So this is an intergenerational thing. I mean, if the state government pours money into more prison beds, so they're talking about expanding Dame Phyllis Frost from a capacity of 600 to over 700, that's another uh, several thousand women over the course of a year, um, sorry, over the course of, of years uh, in and out of the prison, uh, and all their children. So if they have one, two or three children, that's thousands and thousands of kids that are impacted by heading in this direction of, of building prisons. Mm. And I just want to note as well that um, like residential care units are really built like prisons as well. The right. amount of surveillance that's um, on young people who do enter that out of hand out-of-home care system and put into residential um, facilities are just surveilled just as they would be as in youth prisons, which the government is also investing in the expansion of as well in Victoria. Yeah. Uh, surveillance, imprisonment, um, that whole approach to all of these issues just seems to be so pervasive in Victoria at the moment. Um, it's the response to every social issue, including family violence. I mean, the the terrible irony of this focus on family violence resulting in women being over-policed and imprisoned when they are the victims of family violence, and their children are too, um, is extraordinary. And you would think that with all the attention on family violence in Victoria that there would be attention on this problem. Um, but as Amy has explained, it's almost completely ignored within the court system. The magistrate... Um, just doesn't consider that to be a reason. Mm. 
an explanation for what, what's happened, that somebody might defend themselves from a violent attack. Mm, and it's been ignored across multiple court cases that you've been involved in. So with family violence, you'd have to go to the magistrate's court in regards to that family violence intervention order. Then you were criminalised and then imprisoned. And then you failed to meet the compelling reasons test under the bail laws um, and were then yet yeah, further incarcerated. And then also being tied up then with the child protection system as well and DHHS, now DFFH, the Department of Fairness and... Oh, my goodness. Fairness and housing. Welcome to 1984. (laughs) The The Department of Fairness, Amy. (laughs) Just taking the piece at this point. (laughs) Uh, You're absolutely right um, because in entering my guilty plea, I could not say that I was defending myself. Um, Mm. That was the advice. I could give mitigating factors, first-time offending, um, you um, you know, my background, but I could not say I was defending myself because that would under, undermine a guilty plea. I had to be, oh, I am guilty, I'm remorseful. So I was really, I had one really long visit <laughs> with my lawyer and we went round and round in circles about this, about self-defence, what well, I could say um, in presenting mitigating factors that she's like, you just can't. You can't say I'm guilty, but. Um, and I had to listen to a victim impact statement from my husband, which made me sick. And... Um, and even though the DHS intervention with my family stopped, and I'm very, very grateful for that, I will point out that my my younger son ha- has not returned to my full-time care and the best I could ever hope for is 50-50, going through a family court process. I see him weekends. Um, uh, you know, so he was with me every day and now in his life he's spent more time without me than with me, which is horrible. Um, and the interaction with the court orders is yes so there's an intervention order straight away you're a danger to everyone um yeah and then there's the prison process and then what dhs do in the extent of their investigation had no interest in what i had to say because they were basing their findings on the the findings of the court the plea of guilty yes so they're like you were found guilty of this offense um, and another thing is that when I was taken into custody on, upon reception at DPFC, um, officers there took um, photos of bruises on my neck and my back where I was held down. I asked them to send them to the police. I'm not sure if this wasn't done. Um, I didn't have a specific officer. I didn't know. Um, and they couldn't give me copies of these photos or they were received and just ignored. But there's, I was photographed with bruises on me. Was this of interest to the police? DHS, no. DHS had no interest in what I had to say because they were like, by the finding of the court. Um, and then once I was released, it was compliance with my community corrections order reflected what access I would get with my children. Um, I, you know, I, when I was in custody and what, one of the two phone calls I had with DHS, I brought up concerns about my husband having my baby, after perpetrating family violence, he's the victim. That was just not entertained at all. The degree of coercion involved in that just really should impact the community. We really just have to understand how much the power of the state is being brought on these women to plead guilty. Uh, You have a choice. 
you can plead guilty, do an extra 10 days and go back to being with your kids, or you can plead self-defence, tell what actually happened, bring evidence in a court, and you might be in for another year and, and not see your kids for another year and have all the problems that with DHS trying to get them to bring into visits, uh, them into visits. And, yeah, as Amy said, the whole system then orients towards the, uh, the finding that you're guilty after having been coerced into that. It's really quite extraordinary what's happening under these laws. Yeah, it's a lot to think about how the state is really using coercive control in a way um, to try and influence um, the way in which they trap people. Yeah, in these various yeah, systems. It's, it's um, I mean, we think what I've thought about it a lot. Is it intentional, or is it just that these people that we are a, a collateral damage to a law and order agenda which has been proven? to win elections, mm. being tough on crime, responding to the Gargasoulises and the, um, the other you know, violent, serious offenders, and then being unconcerned with the fallout for thousands of people. Um, there are a lot of people in the system who see what's happening, people who work in the prisons, people who work in the courts, people who work as lawyers at, um, at Flat Out and other housing services. Uh, we're finding with the Homes Not Prisons campaign that there is a, a lot of people who know how awful this is and uh, want to do something about it. Um, the question is, can we get ourselves organised to have an impact? I think the important thing is to explain to the public what is really happening. And um, people like Amy, who've had the experience, are really courageous to tell their story. Um, and I think it's really important and powerful that people are hearing what it's really like. Uh, a lot of women we work with say, you know, that the community doesn't understand the reality. There's a, there's a sense that, oh, prison's good for women. It, you know, it gives them a chance to get off alcohol or drugs or it gives them a chance to have a break and um, have a roof over their head and a bed and all of those things. The reality is nothing like that. The reality is completely traumatising and, yeah, potentially can... Um, destroy families and uh, leave children without parents and separate mothers from their kids. Without exception, the biggest issue that was raised by women with us is their kids. That's their number one concern, as Amy has explained. Um, it's hard to imagine being physically, forcefully separated from your young children, um, but that's what's happening to people. Um, and just, sorry, one more thing, um, is that even if there was consequences of my actions, which I accept, I am adamant that more harm, like, so my crime was committed against my husband. The aftermath of that and what the state did to my children was more harmful than the, the, what I did to my husband. You, like, if that was dealt with separately, put it, taking my children, my baby away from me, putting my kids in foster care, um, at one point the two older children were separate. All of that was more damaging to them than my crime. And I have spoken with my dad, we've gone over this, if I was granted bail and then told I'd do 120 days, my children would be in a much better position because it gives you time to make plans. Mm. Um, you can see a lawyer. You can make arrangements. You can have that contact with DHS. And that's the whole thing is that it's not saying I should have got away scot-free. It's that 
the outcomes for women and children um, can be so much better if if the presumption was still there's a presumption of bail unless you are a significant risk. And I don't think there was anything in my history that made me a significant risk to anyone. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Lastly, um, maybe Karen and Amy, if you could just share the ways that listeners can support the Homes Not Prisons campaign. Sure. We've got a open letter to the Victorian government calling on them to not expand Dame Phyllis Frost, which of course is first step. We'd like them we'd like to get to the stage of shrinking Dame Phyllis Frost, but we'll start with don't expand it. So they've announced an expansion of hundred and six beds, which is specifically to deal with the fact that they know that these bail laws are going to result in more and more women going to prison, so they have to build more beds. And actually that's the case across the system. Um, they're building more beds and especially remand beds uh, in the women's and the men's prisons. Um, So, yeah, you can go to our open letter. The open letter is calling for them not to expand Dame Phyllis Frost and to change the priority uh, of the state's spending. Um, For the cost of 100 cells at Dame Phyllis Frost, the government could build 1,000 public housing units um, for women and kids. it's just a no-brainer economically. It's a no-brainer in terms of justice. Uh, we believe that if the public understood what's happening, um, they would not support uh, prison expansion and they would support housing expansion. So, yes, you can go to our open letter, sign on. Please send it out to all of your friends. Share it on social media. Um, we also have uh, an activist network that's organising on Discord, which is going to um, reach out to all different parts of the community. We've got a student group. We've got a housing and homelessness group, family violence group. Um, we've got architects, uh, architecture students who um, are protesting that they'd rather design home uh, housing than prisons. Um, all different parts of the community can be involved. Um, so, yeah, uh, you can email us to at homesnotprisons. Um at gmail.com. Great. Um, And are there any final thoughts from both of you before we wrap up? I would say that we're heading towards a state election towards the end of next year. Um, And uh, if this issue is not raised um, as a serious issue in that campaign to stop the emphasis on imprisonment and surveillance and control and coercion and instead move the priority towards support um, you know, not 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 a police response to uh, family violence, but women's groups, feminist groups, supportive um, interventions, not the police coming in and jailing women. Um, these things just have to be raised in the course of the, this election campaign, and I just urge people to be part of that. Uh, there's a lot of, apart from homes, not prisons, and flat out, there are a lot of groups. Uh, and organisations um, concerned about this, and I think it's about it's a matter of using all different tactics and strategies in, inside, outside. Um, protests, we're going to be um, organising protests. We're 
painting banners and placards. Uh, we've got a poster coming out, which we'll let people know about. On the, um, We've also got a Facebook page that people can go on uh, so that people can put posters up around the place. But, yeah, this has got to be a grassroots public campaign um, to reveal the reality of what's going on. And on that note... Thank you so much, Amy and Karen, for joining us on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. And especially thank you so much, Amy, for just being so truthful and honest um, in your story and sharing that with listeners at 3CR. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. And just then we had an interview that I had earlier on in the week with Amy and Karen, who are activists involved in the Homes Not Prison campaign. And they spoke a bit about the campaign to stop the expansion of Dame Phyllis Frost Prison. Um, But also you would have heard earlier on in that piece that Amy shared her story of being incarcerated at Dame Phyllis Frost Prison. And she shared an in-depth insight into the draconian Victorian bail laws, which came into effect in 2018. And if anything came up for you in that interview, uh, remember that the Lifeline number is 131114. The Lifeline number is 131114. So feel free to call that number if anything did come up for you during that interview. All right. And I think we might go to a song after this. Um, So Carly, do you want to let us know what we're going to be listening to? Oh, come on. Yes, Priya. All right, um, so let's play um, a track from Thalma Plum. This is an old one, but a good one. Better in Black.
And that track there was Better in Black by Thelma Plum. Uh, such a classic. Um, so I think before we sort of jump into our next interview, um, just a really important reminder that the coronial inquest into the death of Raymond Null uh, Thomas is happening at the moment. It has been going on for last week and this week. Today, there is no court, but tomorrow, Friday, is the last day. It's been a really, really difficult time, an especially difficult week. Um, we mentioned earlier with um, the riot police and extra security being called in, despite there being no actual concern in the coroner calling this out. Um, so there have been intimidation tactics. Um, you know, we just really need to show solidarity with the family um, and show up at the coroner's court. So that's the coroner's court of Victoria, 65 Kavanaugh Street, South Bank, Victoria. Um, and this last day will be Friday, the 2nd of July. And the time uh, is around 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now we've seen court um, run over time the past few days, but 10 a.m. is when it will start. So Please try and get there. Friday is the last day, um, and supporters have noted that this is probably going to be a really, really important day. Um, we need um, to show up as much as we can. So please go support the family of Raymond Noel Lindsay Thomas, um, who died in a police pursuit by Victoria Police in 2017, um, and his family who are fighting for justice. Um, all right, so uh, we are going to head into uh, some information about uh, a special that we have on next week, which is uh, which happens every year beyond the bars, um, and it's falling from the fifth to the ninth. So um, listen up. Hi, I'm Kutcher Edwards. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates in Victorian prisons. We started in 2002, and this year marks 20 years on the air. Be sure to tune in at 11am each morning from Monday, July the 5th to Friday, July the 9th for Beyond the Bars 2021 broadcasts. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars thoughts within visions I see daring to dream my destiny I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, and it is just coming up to 7.57 in the morning. And now we're going to go to another track. This is Better Things by Kian.
that track just there was Better Things by Kian. Um, and now joining us on the line is Deb Lee, New South Wales Sector Development Officer from the First People's Disability Network. And Deb joins us to speak about the experiences of people with cognitive disability and the issues that people face when coming into contact with the criminal legal system and NDIS. Welcome, Deb. Thanks for joining us on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Thanks, Carly and Yunda Yalada to all. So hello and welcome, my people. So just wanted to introduce myself. So I am a proud Gugga Yalanji descendant from far north Queensland who has been blessed to work off-country and support mob across New South Wales working for First People's Disability Network. And I'd also like to proudly say that I'm also a person who lives with a disability. So thanks for having me along, Carly, and welcome to all you mob out there. Thanks, Deb. So just a bit of an introduction, listeners. Um, the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability is scheduled to hold a public hearing in Brisbane later this year to explore issues relating to people with cognitive disability and people's experiences of the criminal legal system and NDIS. So these are just some issues that 3CR Thursday Breakfast wanted to cover uh, well before that public hearing. So um, yeah, into my first question, Deb, 
People with cognitive disabilities are overrepresented in the criminal legal system. The statistics are completely outdated. But there was a study by Corrections Victoria in 2011 that found that 42% of incarcerated men and 33% of incarcerated women have an acquired brain injury. Um, So, Debbie, can you talk about some of the issues that people with a cognitive disability, especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with cognitive disabilities face when coming into contact with the criminal legal system? Yeah, sure, Carly. So I think um, the first thing to remember here is that for our people, we don't discriminate and nor do we actually see disability. We just see our brothers and sisters who walk along beside us. And I think um, it's important to remember that while ever we aren't recognised in the Constitution, that this will always raise ongoing concerns around recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living with a disability as having rights. So everything we do, um, you know, our governments need to remember and be mindful that our culture is embedded in us, Carly. Our culture is inclusion and it needs to be activated from the community up, not from the top down, as quoted by Dr Scotty Avery. Um, So I think it is important to talk about when cognitive impairments for our mob, I think um, we need to remember that there's many, many types of impairments that we can talk about. But there's also physical disabilities that affect people's ability to comprehend what's happening around them too, which also rarely gets talked about. And that's kind of the silent mystery here. So as we know that for our people, hearing loss, Carly, is a major issue which can compound disadvantage for our people with cognitive disabilities. Remembering that, you know, only nine out of 10 inmates in Northern Territory jails at the moment have a significant hearing loss adding to disadvantage for our people. So the overrepresentation of our people in the Australian criminal justice system, it is a matter of utmost importance to government and to all Australian policymakers, Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. But also, I just wanted to be mindful there around cognitive disability. So what we do know is that our women in prison experience the very high rates of vulnerability. So just for example, there's over 50% of, 57% of our women in prison who've already experienced a head injury that led to unconsciousness. And in the majority of cases, the head injury occurred as a result of an assault. So what we do know is that our women are often more likely to have unidentified disabilities, making the transition into the NDS, more NDIS, more difficult, which means a large number of women are missing out on support, which they may be entitled to. And what we do know is that the Royal Commission further went on to say that many people enmeshed in the criminal justice system have co-occurring cognitive and psychosocial disabilities as well as experience of social disadvantage and the interplay of these factors and how that can lead to great difficulties exercising, you know, decision-making, choice and control, especially when embedded in the justice system. So... In 2021, here we sit, Carly, with more Aboriginal deaths in custody than ever, with families having to share their stories with the United Nations as they still don't feel that they can be heard in this country. 
So I think talking disability is even harder as we still have no voice in the eyes of the government. Yet in community, and our, our identity doesn't change. Yeah, thanks for sharing, Deb. Um, and when people are incarcerated, there are limited disability supports available, let alone access to NDIS. In 2019, the National Disability Insurance Agency introduced justice liaison officer roles to support NDIS participants in youth and adult prison systems. So has the addition of these roles made it easier for people in prisons to access NDIS support? Look, in um, my experience and the experience working with First People's Disability Network, Carly, no. So the roles, when they initially first rolled out, the justice liaison roles, they weren't identified internally or externally, leaving several departments such as Justice to reach out to organisations like First People's Disability Network to connect them into the agency. Um, What we knew was there was a memorandum of understanding in place to streamline interactions between um, departments such as Justice and the NDIS um, to assist anybody who's in in the system to have an NDIS plan done three months prior to release. However, what we've seen that that role was not effective and nor was um, there enough staff allocated to that role. So initially when rolling out, there were only five staff allocated to those roles and out of those five staff, um, there was no Aboriginal identified JLO across Australia that I was aware of or able to connect with at any time. Yeah, um, and that kind of makes sense because you know, prisons are state-run generally, whereas the NDIS and the NDIA agency um, are federally run. So, yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense as to why these things don't really match up. Um, And there was a cognitive impairment diversion program in New South Wales that was established in October 2017. Um, And that was a two-year pilot that aimed to increase the diversion of people with cognitive impairment and low-level offending away from the criminal legal system and into appropriate community-based services. But that program has since ended on the 30th of June, 2020. So I'm interested in, have there been other similar programs across so-called Australia? And did that program or similar programs, do they actually support people with cognitive disabilities? Look, I think it's fair to say, Carly, that over an extended period of time, what we have seen is continued attempts and investments by our government to actually respond to, you know, our people who may be in the justice system. But when we talk about the CIDP program, there was a pilot that was run for over two years. Now, just in the first 12 months alone, Carly, there were 79 individuals um, who identified as Aboriginal. They'd been assessed as being eligible for the program in its first 12 months. And the program showed a great amount of success but was disbanded after final reports were received from IDRS. And during that time, during the two years, people spoke about multiple life challenges, 
in their interviews. They included mental health, substance abuse, trauma, other health issues on top of cognitive disability. And the NDIS and CIDP plans, which included links to mental health and substance use services, were really highly valued by our brothers and sisters, with many of our mob reporting that they had not been connected to these supports at the time of referral into the program. So obviously, you know, a really, really big gap there. But what we mostly see, Carly, is we see this ongoing cycle where we run pilot programs which are only available to mob in very selected areas. So, A, you know, not really hitting the mark there because it remains tokenistic um, in a sense. If we as a nation are to provide support to people with disabilities, you know, and in particular to our brothers and sisters who may have cognitive impairments, we need to make sure that there's ongoing investment um, in this sector. And, you know, those several programs that have been trialled, they need to be granted ongoing funding, not so much pilots, but I need, I, there needs to be some permanency around that. You know, and maybe feed in with other successful programs like circle sentencing as well to have that longer term impact for our mob. Yeah, in an ideal world, that would be happening. Um, and just lastly, um, through my current work, I see far too many young people with cognitive disabilities being listed as the respondent or perpetrator of violence on family violence intervention orders. And yeah, through a series of breaches, inevitably people are criminalised for behaviours that have been misidentified as being family violence. If someone um, consistently breaches a family violence intervention order, then they could find themselves in prison. So how common is it for police to pursue family violence intervention orders against people with cognitive disabilities? Um, look, Carly, I think it's very fair to say that this is happening on a frequent basis. So what we are finding is that disability is often not identified at all when our brothers and sisters may enter the system. And I think it's important to pay my respects here to... Um, brother Sonny and his family. So most of us all remember in 2018, we remember only too well the handling of brother Sonny Ray Austin's case and how his mental state had deteriorated significantly after he was picked up by the police over a family violence order um, in, in Victoria. Only three days later, he was transferred to a holding cell beneath the Melbourne Magistrates Court where he awaited, um, you know, the G4S custodial officers who were in attendance um, during a head dive incident. Now, treatment and intervention was not provided to Mr Austin at that stage and after his in injury the Victorian police continued to prosecute the family violence matter before eventually dropping it. So we do see this only too often that disability is dead by the courts, um, dealt with by the courts under criminal acts leading to unnecessary convictions of our mob. And I think it's fair to say as well, Carly, when we're out there, we're talking to community in very big rural and regional towns right across Australia. We find that many police stations still don't have access 
to ACLOs, trained mental health officers, let alone staff who are trained to support people with a disability, which is why more focus needs to be placed on providing those appropriate supports so we can continue to work alongside of our mob and give them the appropriate support that they need. Um, so I guess, again, in answer to your question, just every in every sense of the word disability, Australia has a long way to go. Um, it's something that we find is still a very silent com um, conversation out in community, whether it be coming from governments or, you know, whether it be coming from people who are trying to provide support to our mob. Um, but, yeah, again, look, I think um, we need consistency across all states um, if we really want to change what's happening for people living out there with cognitive disabilities or, or any disability um, for mob living in Australia. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Deb. Um, lastly, are there any other... Um First People's Disability Network events or news coming up that you wanted to talk about or any final thoughts before we wrap up this interview? Yeah, look, um, I think as First People's Disability Network, um, you know, we come from a social model and a human rights-based model. So the first thing I'd want to encourage is the mob out there living, you can be anywhere across Australia, but if you are out there and you're supporting somebody who's living with a disability or you may just have questions, you know, based around what are your rights as a person with a disability when you are engaging with different services, um, please don't hesitate to contact us. You know, our work is right across Australia. Um, but a couple of exciting things that we have got going on at the moment. We have Uncle Damien Griffiths, who is our CEO, who sits on the National Voice to Parliament underneath Uncle Ken Wyatt. So just trying to raise awareness and, you know, talk about current issues for our mob living out there with the disability. We have also been doing some work around the Disability Royal Commission as well. And we also sit on the Coalition of Aboriginal Peaks, so very, very keen to hear from Mob Living with a Disability on how they look at closing the gap targets and what those 17 priorities may mean to them. So there's not much that we're not across at the moment, Carly. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's definitely a lot going on with the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disabilities. So, yeah, there's a lot of work that First People's Disability Network is doing and I really encourage listeners to just go to the website um, and check out the work that the First People's Disability Network are doing. So thanks so much, Deb, for joining us this morning to speak about all of these issues um, that people face with cognitive disabilities in prison and just the difficulty um, of that interface with NDIS as well. No, thanks so much for your time, Carly. And just want to uh, give a big shout out to my mob and my big son, Howie. Um, I just want to wish all you mob that we all stay well and we all stay safe during COVID. Thanks for that, Deb. Thanks, Carly. Thanks. 
And just then we heard from Deb Lee, New South Wales Sector Development Officer from the First People's Disability Network. And Deb joined us to speak about the experiences of people with cognitive disability and the issues that people face when coming into contact with the criminal legal system and NDIS. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And I'm about to speak with George Cangere, who represents the newly formed Save Preston Market Action Group. And George joins us to discuss the fight to save Preston Market from aggressive redevelopment that's being proposed by the Victorian Planning Authority. So good morning, George. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Priya. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Um, So could you start out by telling us a bit about the history and significance of Preston Market to the local community? Yeah, so Preston Market's about 50 years old in the middle of Preston. Um, I I imagine a lot of your viewers would have already been there, but it's it's a really uh, big open-air market. People sell lots of fruit and vegetables and things um, and, you know, fresh meat and fish and things like that. Um, And it's just a really – it's an amazing – place which really represents the sort of uh, the, the working class history and migrant history of the northern suburbs um, and it still represents that like it's an amazing place to go and just um, and just uh, you know experience and, and hang out um, yeah and you know it's very important for the uh, in terms of like the affordability of the food is another very important thing about it it's uh, the prices at the market are, you know they're pretty amazing yeah I mean I think like it's it's hard to it's hard to undersell Preston Market. I, as as somebody who also lives in the local area, Preston Market is awesome, um, and it yeah. is just such a such a hub as well for connection um, in the community, especially for older folks who who go shopping in the market too. Absolutely, it's it's really you can see that it's sort of this um, important place for people, just in terms of just yeah, like somewhere to go. Absolutely, yeah. So um, when was this redevelopment of the area first proposed and what is being planned for the market site by the Victorian Planning Authority? Yeah, so um, the redevelopment's been on the cards for um, quite some time um, because the site uh, is privately owned. So the the entire time that the Preston Market's been there, the site itself has been privately owned, but the market has grown into this sort of um, uh, organic sort of community, the core of the area, basically. Um, but they've, in the past few years, uh, Salter, which is the um, the corporation which um, wants to redevelop the market, presented a new. About five years ago, they presented a, a plan which included um, 28 storey uh, high rises, 
and things like that. So just things which, if any, if if for anyone who doesn't know, Preston's largely a very flat area. Mm. Um, if you had a 28-storey high-rise in the middle of Preston, that it, it would literally look like a, it would just be such an incredible eyesore and change to the whole thing. And um, since then, there's been a bit of a dispute. The Save the, Save the Preston um, market group, at a, a sort of a, a version of it, was there at, the, at that time to mm. sort of oppose that sort of thing. And then um, as the, the Victorian planning authorities' plans have started to come out for the site, uh, the group has sort of reformed to to contest what's planned now. What's planned now is um, at least three multi-storey buildings, the tallest of which is going to be 20 storeys, and they're going to knock down up to 80% of the market um, and retain some, <clears throat> pardon me, retain some um, token sort of area of the market, essentially, uh, but largely just redevelop the entire area with um, 2,000 new apartments and up to 6,000 new residents. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is yeah. a massive proposed change, you know. Um, yeah. There, there's definitely, I guess, like a need for appreciation of the, the scale of this transformation. Um, and I'm wondering what the response has been from community members, because I also understand that the Darabin Council has undertaken stakeholder engagement to prepare a report on community views on the market and plan redevelopment, which is called the Heart of Preston. Um, and so to what extent has the VPA actually taken priorities outlined within that report into account? Yeah, so they've been, I mean, uh, it's not surprising, they've been very sort of um, silk-tongued, basically, in their the way that they've They've uh, taken on board people's wish for the, you know, for the preservation of the market. Um, so the the council the council's um, current position is that the market should be um, sort of uh, retained um, as it is essentially as a sort of very important historical and cultural kind of place. Um, but. Uh, the VPA is essentially saying, "Oh, well, we're going to knock down most of it, and we'll sort of we'll keep this area, we'll rebuild some of it, but it's all really just um, it's all really just window dressing." And the, the consultation processes are, I mean, really they're they're a process in manufacturing consent because they don't sit down and ask the community, "What should we do with this this the heart of our community? What should we do to make it better?" They sit down and say, "Right, we're going to redevelop the area," and so what would you like us to possibly include? And then mm. they report that as the community saying, oh, the community said they wanted this and that. The community has never really asked what we want to happen um, with Preston Market. We're just asked um, for some sort of fringe suggestions, uh, which, uh, you know, just only, you know, they're just a marginal to the essential thing, which is that this corporation stands to make, you know, approximately a billion dollars we've calculated. Mm. out of this redevelopment yeah yeah i mean and i think like um from from having a, a very brief read of the vpa document as well and also um the heart of preston um report uh, it seems like uh there's been a sort of selective uptake of the sentiment of the heart of preston report without actually also taking into account the practical concerns around the physical space um yeah. so you know we need to retain some sort of community space but the nature of that space can obviously vary drastically Absolutely, and it also doesn't consider that this, whatever happens, however sort of tastefully they decide to knock down Preston Market and, uh, you know, and rebuild some of it or whatever, um, this is going to have a massive impact on the, just the general process of gentrification in the area. 
Mm-hmm. Because once this happens, um, you know, when you're in the area, you can really see that this market sort of is a very key kind of um, aspect to holding the area together. And once that's made into a multi-storey sort of um, area with, I think they're proposing things like cinemas there and, um, you know, it's just going to be, uh, it's going to change the whole area uh, irrevocably and it'll change things for, well, not only residents who, because um, I, I can't imagine that the, the sort of the conditions on the prices of the market are going to mm. remain the same. Um, you know, the price of food's going to go up, probably the, uh, you know, rent of nearby shops is probably going to go up. You know, mm. as, as, you know the, the general process of gentrification, I think, is going to really kick off. Yeah, I mean, we don't need cinemas there. We got Northland, mate. But um, <laughs> I know. Uh, literally down the road. Exactly. You know? um, so yeah. we need to um, wrap up in a moment. But um, could you Absolutely. just um, take us through uh, where people can find out more and support this fight to save Preston Market? Yes. So yeah, uh, we're um, part of the Save the Preston Market Action Group. You can go and find us at um, www.savetheprestonmarket.com and put your details down. Um, we're a group which is saying absolutely not to the destruction of the Preston market, and we are demanding that the um, the council work with the state government to compulsorily acquire the site because that's the only way that this, um, you know, this fundamental community area is going to be protected. Um, and we will really have to fight hard for it, um, just like people have had to fight hard for other things like Pre- Victoria Market, for instance, in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, thank you so much for, for the work that you and others are doing to save the Preston Market. Um, we support your fight and encourage people to go uh, to Save the Preston Market Action Group's page um, and find out more, figure out what you can do. So thank you so much, absolutely. George. Thanks so much, Bria. Thanks for having me. And that was a conversation with George Kanjere, who is a member of Save Preston Market Action Group. And George joined us to discuss the fight to save Preston Market from pretty aggressive redevelopment plans proposed by the Victorian Planning Authority. And uh, we're coming up to, I guess, the end of the show for 3CR Thursday morning breakfast again this week. Um, As usual, so packed. Always get it into the last minute. Yeah, as always. Um, So shall we take listeners through what we've spoken about today? Yeah, so first up, we heard from Amy and Karen, and they gave us a bit of an update about the Homes Not Prison campaign. And Amy also shared her story of being incarcerated at Dame Phyllis Frost Prison, and she shared an in-depth insight into the draconian Victorian bail laws, which came into effect in 2018. And then we heard from Deb Lee, the New South Wales Sector Development Officer for the First People's Disability Network, joining us to discuss the experiences of people with cognitive disability and issues they face when coming into contact with the criminal legal system and the NDIS. And finally, we were just joined by George Cangere, who represents the newly formed Save Preston Market Action Group. And uh, George joined us to talk about the fight to save Preston Market from redevelopment plans that have been proposed by the Victorian Planning Authority. And again, just really encouraging people to uh, head to their page. So just by looking up Save Preston Market Action Group, they've got a Facebook page and they've also got a website. Um, And another reminder, it is really important for people to show up tomorrow to the coroner's court in South Bank to support the family of Raymond Thomas. Uh, The coronial inquest uh, has been going on last week and this week. And tomorrow is the final day of this sitting. Um, There have been intimidation tactics utilized. Um, You know, the family really, really needs your support. Um, And even if you can only go for a little bit, it really helps. So that's from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, it might go over, but definitely try and get there by 10 a.m. 
um, and that is at the coroner's court in South Bank. Um, yeah, so that's all we've got time for today on Thursday morning breakfast. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you again to everyone who donated to Radiothon, and we'll catch you next week. Bye. Okay, see ya. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.